Welcome back to our podcast within a podcast, pottering around the end of term feast of Mangum Reads. We are three muggles who just read the last chapter of the first book. My name is Sarah. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, BJ and Spencer. How are you all doing? Woo! Excited! (laughs) It's finally over. Yay! Man, we're (laughs) the two ends of the spectrum today. (laughs) No, I'm I'm just teasing you, Spencer. Um, But but it was fun to finally get to the end of the book and have a rehashing of what I only vaguely remembered. Um, A lot happens in this last chapter. Yeah, it is one-tenth of the book. (laughs) Plot-wise? Practically percentage-wise, too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, That's not too far off. Yeah, it goes from 89% in my... uh, Oh, you're doing the actual percentages. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, it only goes to 96 because apparently there's 4% of... Oh, it has uh, the first chapter of the next book, and that, that is... 3% 3% of the book. <laughs> I, I, and I had to stop myself cold when I noticed that detail. Oh, boy. Um, well, we are, as I think is probably clear by this point, on the very last chapter of the very first book of the Harry Potter series, and we have um, a couple of segments that we go through. We have a rapid-fire recap, and then BJ um, amuses us with some words or phrases or any number of things that he might have on hand for us. <laughs> And uh, Spencer gives us newbie's notes, which should be particularly interesting given where we end up in this chapter. And uh-huh. um, I award house points. And uh, then we have some questions. Sounds like good. We have a plan. All right. Um, yeah. So we so are going to start with the recap. Uh, so 10% of the book, full to the rafters with content. I'm taking three minutes. <laughs> that is reasonable. Okay. <laughs> I am exercising my privilege on this, the last episode of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, and I am taking three minutes, and it is still uh, rapid fire. I can only anticipate. <laughs> All right, the, the, the clock is ready at your pleasure. Uh, let's see if you can get this under three. Well, Spencer, before we start my time, Spencer, mm. you turned the page, you went to the next chapter. Who is it? Well, the opening line pretty much says it for me. It was Quirrell. <laughs> yes, it was Quirrell in the final chamber with the face in his head. Um, and he has lost his stutter. He has lost his twitch. And he is pretty pleased that Harry thought it was Snape, who was trying to save him on the broom, by the way. Anyway, Quirrell is um, pretty pissed that he can't find the stone. Because what else is in the chamber? The Mirror of Erezed. So Quirrell sees himself presenting the stone to his master, getting rewards, etc. And speaking of master, it turns out whoever it is is always with Quirrell. We'll, put a, we'll table that, put a pin in it. Harry starts thinking that all he wants in the world is to find that stone. And lo and behold, a mysterious voice tells Quirrell to use the boy. Uh, he brings Harry over, looks in the mirror, Harry looks in the mirror, and feels the weight of the stone appear in his pocket. But uh, he, of course, lies and tells Quirrell something about winning the House Cup, but the voice knows and demands to speak to Harry directly. Trixie so Quirrell... Hobbitses. What? Trixie Hobbitses. <laughs> Quirrell reluctantly unwraps his turban and turns around. There's a face-ish thing in the back of his head. Uh, glaring red eyes and slits for a nose. It is Voldemort. Sort of. 
He's been drinking unicorn blood to stay alive and knows that Harry has the stone in his pocket. Harry tries to run. Quirrell grabs him, but, uh, burning searing pain. But for Quirrell, it's worse. He seems to be actually burning. So Harry, on instinct, grabs Quirrell's face right before he casts a deadly curse. And he holds on for as long as he can while Quirrell something happens. Um, maybe burns up. Harry wakes up in the hospital wing for some exposition with Dumbledore. Dumbledore came back on a hunch just in time to pull Quirrell off Harry. He then reveals that Nicholas Flamel has agreed to destroy the stone. To the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. But they both know Voldemort is going to keep trying to come back. So Harry's got questions. We don't learn why uh, Voldemort wanted to kill Harry in the first place, but we do learn that Quirrell couldn't touch him because of sort of old blood magic. Harry's mother died saving him. Dumbledore did give Harry the invisibility cloak. It was Harry's dad's. And Snape and Harry's dad hate each other because Harry's dad saved Snape's life. And then Dumbledore is really proud of himself for the trick with the mirror of Arized before he gets in uh, earwax birdie bots every flavor bean. Ron and Hermione get the story, as does Hagrid, who then gives Harry a photo album of pictures of his parents. I'm not crying. You're crying. End of term feast, Slytherin won the house cup, except a few last minute points. 50 to Ron for the best game played game of chess, 50 to Hermione for logic, 60 to Harry for nerves of steel, and 10 to Neville for standing up to his friends. Great hall decorations are changed, Gryffindor wins, and then they pack up to go back to the Hogwarts Express and back to Dursley's, where they don't know that Harry is not allowed to use magic. Under three. Well done, Sarah. Thank you. So, Spencer, how did you feel about the uh, Zaphod Beeblebrox of villains? Uh, you know, I got a Terry Pratchett quote reserved here for just the sheer amount of gloating that's going on with the course of this villain. <laughs> uh, I'm very glad that Quirrell apparently went to the e- the evil school of evil people in terms of his <laughs> desire to just really frame out to Harry, you are at my mercy and I want you to know it. Yeah, to a certain extent, this uh, there are things in this chapter that very much felt like so if your parents have been reading this to you over the course of, you know, two months and you don't really remember what has happened in the plot and exactly all of the things that have gone on, let me recount them for you and then we'll have our final battle. Yep. I think that's fair. And I think that is probably exactly the reason that that happens. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's unreasonable. It's just a little bit no. eh, tough as an adult. Um, Listen, so... I don't know. We've been reading this over the past like two and a half months. Um, I'm happy to get a recap. <laughs> um, so I only have one thing for uh, wordplay, um, mm-hmm. and I will turn it over to Spencer for, for newbies notes afterwards. Um, but a number of things to comment on for bothering Sarah. Um, I did not get this the first time around, but Nicholas Flamel's wife name is essentially perennial, mm-hmm. which fits. Hmm. <laughs> That does fit. J.K. Rowling seems to really enjoy putting uh, names on characters that are very much befitting what their role is in the story or their role is in their background. Yep. So so that was my, my wordplay appreciation um, in general. And then there were some specific things that I thought was were very J.K. Rowling-ish, which was um, Hermione Granger for the use of cool logic in the face of fire. <laughs> hmm. um, so little things like that. Um, but Spencer, I, I have a feeling that newbies notes will, um, be a long time. I have a treatise written. (laughs) I'll try to keep it short. 
Because I, while I enjoyed this chapter, it inevitably gave me a lot more questions than it did answers, to a frustrating degree that even the characters in story lampshaded. I will start at the beginning and go from there. Okay. Uh, point number one. The fact that Snape apparently knew about Quirrell to a pretty impressive degree, to the point that he's been thwarting him throughout this story, raises a hell of a lot of questions. Key one being... If Snape knew about this all along, why did he not go to the proper authorities? Or if he did, this again suggests that Dumbledore really enjoys setting up children to solve his problems while exposing the imminent danger. So there's a lot that's not explained there. Because, at least according to Quirrell, Snape knew about this from the get-go. He's, by which we've seen several scenes of Harry, of Harry overseeing the two of them, to realize that that's another way of interpreting those scenes. So why he didn't thwart this months ago... Why he didn't just go to Dumbledore? There's a lot that I can offer explanations for, but the book has not given them to me yet. I'd so, like to imagine that like 80% of the Ministry of Magic at some point will go Hell Hydra and everything will make sense in like book five. <laughs> that is definitely possible. It's also perfectly possible from what Harry directly deduces that the leadership of the school is perfectly willing to put children at risk of harm if it ultimately exposes the villain. And that may have been just what they were doing, essentially waiting for Quirrell to make his move so they can jump on him. If so, they let a, basically a male trick get them very close to losing this, were it not for the sake of three plucky youngsters, but it worked out okay. Uh, I suppose Dumbledore would have made it back in time to actually even thwart this without their help, but, you know, they played an integral role in buying that extra time just in case. Uh, one thing we just talked about, it is indeed kind of lucky for the sake of Harry and, the, you know, I suppose the free magic world that Quirrell enjoys gloating. And I'm just really much reminded of a Terry, one of my favorite Terry Pratchett quotes that if you have to look along the shaft of an arrow from the wrong end, if a man has you entirely at his mercy, then hope like hell that man is an evil man. Because the evil like power, power over people, and they want to see you in fear. They want you to know that you're going to die. So they'll talk, they'll gloat, they'll watch you squirm. They'll put off the moment of murder like a man will put off a good cigar. So hope like hell your captor's an evil man. A good man will kill you with hardly a word. So that one definitely came to mind because Quirrell, helpfully, as BJ pointed out, recounts every single misdeed he's done over the course of the entire story with just <laughs> sheer relish. Which is helpful. I was doing little check boxes of, okay, Quirrell did that, Quirrell did that, Quirrell did that, Quirrell did that. He did everything. Well done him. Uh, the stone appearing in the pocket thing was clever, but it's clever in a way that implies that magic has serious complexity addiction problems. Because that one seems like it would have stopped everybody by itself without needing the five prior puzzles. That and also, can... it wouldn't... Sorry to jump in, but also it would yeah. not have... Like, none of this presumably would have come to a head if Harry himself hadn't ended up in that room in the first place. Like, yeah, what was Quirrell much. going to do? <laughs> Stare frustrated. That basically would have been the solution. They could have just put a little beeper alarm sent to Dumbledore <laughs> saying, someone's looking at the mirror, go here, and that's all the security they really need on this. Their sheer desire to make this a more complex mystery kind of caught both caused the plot and led to unnecessary difficulty to reach this point. Mm -hmm. So I think that more says something about the magical world is that they kind of need this more than the solution really required it. Uh, comment in terms of Voldemort. Uh, that's a creepy visual that I didn't really want to have. That I've always found backward things kind of freaky as is. So the idea of a half-man, half-snake face kind of writhing out the back of someone's skull. Just, 
I didn't really want that visual, but now it's with me. Uh, it's interesting also that Voldemort apparently doesn't need, feel the need to gloat the same way that his minion does. That he comes across as being hyper-aware, pretty damn competent, and always on step for what the next play needs to be. So I guess it kind of suggests a certain degree of his power potential or power position that he doesn't really feel the need to gloat or do anything. He can uh, give or take at whim just because he is that powerful, though perhaps not right now. Uh, as for the spell that apparently saved Harry, uh, I'm kind of amused by the fact that I've always enjoyed Huey Lewis and the News, The Power of Love Song, and I just always <laughs> knew that song was magic, and now I know it really is. You have found it, it, the key. The key we've all been looking for, Spencer. I would, have, I would have been humming that song all along, reach that puzzle. See, guys, we talked about what use I would have when going through this. <laughs> Little did you know that my love for Back, for the, Back to the Future would have saved us all. Yeah. I mean, like, we're not going to call it plot armor. We're going to call it the, a mother's love, which which is fine. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> uh, in terms of this whole ending itself, it's really interesting to see how different writers in the fantasy setting do endings. Uh, where I was very much grew up in the Tolkien school, where endings are long, drawn-out affairs that kind of end a nar narrative mythic arc. Uh, J.K. Rowling apparently does not buy into that school because she does this entire thing, 10% of the book, at a dead frickin' sprint. There is so much done here, so quickly, that key seminal moments feel like they're just left as little footnotes for what the next chapter in the story will bring. Which is an interesting thing when I'm presuming the second book hadn't come out within like six months of the first. Like, there was a gap here, right? I believe so. Do you guys remember? Nope. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, but the other question I have for you, Spencer, is the long drawn out ending that you remember from Tolkien is... From the first book? No, it's from the last one in the arc. But even, uh, yeah, that actually is a fair point. That this one I, is leading in directly to the second. It's still just cramming a hell of a lot into a brief period. Yeah. Uh, to the point that even the, the exits of the characters are seemingly as rushed as I guess they would be in real life. As they're just kind of hurrying to the train to go on to their holiday. Spencer, did you ever watch uh, Dollhouse? I, no, I didn't. I skipped that one. Okay. Um, it was... Uh, a fun enough sci-fi TV show, um, uh, but it was another Josh Whedon TV show that sort of got canceled um, by the way of pretty much everything else that he's done apart from Buffy. And um, But he knew that it got canceled about halfway into the second season. And his response was, okay, screw you guys, I'm going to finish the story. <laughs> There in was like six episodes. Yeah, I mean, it was more like four, but essentially it was, I have another season's worth of material and I will put it in the episodes that I have left. <laughs> that sounds exhausting. It was. It, it's something <laughs> that I feel like I should go through again because it's a, it's a roller coaster. It is, uh, you know, as fast as you can go through plot, essentially, and it made reasonable sense, but it was, I, I don't want to leave it unfinished again. And so that I, this is very much a, I have a bunch of things to get through and I don't want to take three chapters to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess I think it's also a knowing your audience because, because if it were two or three chapters of, you know, one chapter where, um, 
they that she describes the feast and then one chapter where they flip the house cup and then the last chapter where they get exam results and go home i figure it will be a it will not leave the taste in her readers mouths that she want to when they're 9 10 11 12 or whatever yeah and i do i do think that um you know one of the reasons that i mean there are several reasons that later books get longer but it is partially this thing that you're saying, BJ, of sort of knowing your audience and what their tolerance for extended plot is and things like that. And so in the later books, there are a lot of things that have just more time to breathe. Um, and not more, quarrel, though. And, no, not quarrel. Uh, I've got questions there. We'll get to those. <laughs> uh, three last points. From, well, a couple last points from me. Um, one, this chapter really... Raise some interesting questions about Dumbledore's ethics and morality, mm-hmm. of where he's very much been framed as the big good of the story, but the main characters really did realize here that they've been directly manipulated for the purpose for his purposes over the course of this tale. They don't begrudge him this, they almost seem to find it funny, but I don't even know if they fully get, or if I fully understood, how much he's manipulating them, and how much he may be straight up lying to them despite his reassurances that he isn't. And we may go into that a little bit in questions, we'll see. Uh, I love the moment with Hagrid because it hit two things I wanted to address. One, he finally apparently realized that he fucked up and drove a lot of this plot through giving up Darius' details in that bar of his. But it also reminds me very much, or at least gives me insight very much, into why Dumbledore why Dumbledore views Hagrid as so important and views him as a close friend and wants to keep him around. Because this scene involves him doing the literal sweetest possible thing he could ever do for Harry. I don't think he intentionally planned this to be the nicest possible gesture he could ever offer, but it was, and it's effective that it ends without Harry saying anything because he could only be speechless in response to this. It, I, like you said, Sarah, I was getting a little bit misty at that. That is just an incredible gesture for, another, for one person to do for another. Uh, I'm surprised Slytherin didn't straight up go into armed revolt when Dumbledore patted the count there at the end. <laughs> because we, we've discussed how... The points uh, system in this uh, in Hogwarts is pretty unlimited in terms of what professors can do, but I don't think we really fully got that one professor at the very end of term when they're already hanging the damn banners and uh, recognizing Slytherin one to just give 170 points at the last second and then with a flick of his wand change what the banners are. I think that's the flipping the bird, dropping the mic, and walking <laughs> off stage. Yeah, um, pretty much of the magic world. Yeah, so I think that. The real thing that would be going on here um, is they deserved some points, maybe, from the last things. But I think what the right that this is setting, or the wrong that this is setting a right, is they shouldn't have lost 150 points from wandering about in the evening when it was basically Dumbledore being like, all right, kitties, I'm going to give you everything that you need to go, like, wander around (laughs) at night. And, oh, yeah, like, one of my favorite people is an idiot and got a dragon. And so that's why you lost 150 points. Mm -hmm. So essentially what they got back were those 150 points and, like, 50 more. Plus a few more, yeah. But, like, not that much more. Maybe, Maybe it wasn't even. I think it was, like, 20 more. I think it was, yeah, I think it was. 
If they'd just gotten 150 back, I think they would have lost. So you have an extra 10. And then even then, they still only would have tied, and it took Neville's 10 to get them over. Yeah. Which I do enjoy that Neville is again being set up as the ultimate hero of the story, <laughs> in the sense that he is the one that wins the day here in the end, and he is the one that has the most character growth over the course of this tale. Is it possible Neville will be the ultimate hero of this entire story? I don't know, but he's certainly on that path. Uh, it is a, uh, a stark upward trajectory, Spencer. <laughs> You, you, you can't start... go down from where he started. <laughs> when you're at the bottom of a well, you can only really climb. Sure. Some people dig, so... <laughs> Through the water, why not? <laughs> but that's what I got, and then I got about, uh, we'll say, ten questions that I may narrow down to a few more reasonable numbers here in a minute. All right, well, while you um, think about how you might want to narrow those down, Spencer, speaking of house points, it is time for the final chapter, Awarding of House Points. And actually... Uh, this is, I mean, it's pretty easy for me, uh, except I have a question for you all. So, I mean, the ultimate loser of this chapter, I think that we have a clear answer. Um, Quirrell has not done well here. Mm -mm. We perhaps don't know exactly what has happened to him, which I believe we will talk about in a minute. Um, but it's nothing good. And we have had explicit conversation between Harry and Dumbledore about the fact that Voldemort is still out there somewhere, kind of plotting to come back in some way or other. So while this was a setback for him, it was not the uh, complete and utter disaster that this is for Quirrell. Um, so full-on loser there. Winner, you know, uh, we had house points awarded very <laughs> conveniently at mm -hmm. the end of this chapter. And it seems that from those house points, Harry probably won. Um, although I suppose if you were taking relative value of house points to uh, number of house points that you have won in the past um, and potential for house points just on a day-to-day -day basis, Neville is probably the winner on that scale. Um, so I guess, I don't know. I mean, I guess we should probably say that Harry won. He got some pictures of his family, which is super great. Um, he's going back to the Dursleys in a much better position. He's alive, which is... <laughs> Good start. Pretty good. <laughs> um, so I'm going to award them to Harry. But I am interested in your thoughts on the relative weighting of the points that Dumbledore gave. I understand that for plot's sake, Harry had to get the most points out of anyone. Um, because it is Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone or Sorcerer's Stone. But do you think the Ron 50, Hermione 50... Harry 60, Neville 10 is a fair allocation of points given events in the last chapter or two. Well, I mean, Neville's feels appropriately token. You know, it's like, good, jo <laughs> good job you. You had no direct relevance to this plot. In fact, in fact, actually interfered with its process. But, you know, character growth, here's, here's a penny. So, fine. Uh, in terms of the other three, I mean, they all did play a pretty integral role in making this happen. The book purposely set up each one effectively solved a puzzle unto themselves. But it seems like Hermione did most of the legwork throughout this story, particularly at the end. I mean, but did Harry actually do anything useful? Uh, the snitch. He did catch the snitch. Okay, but... The, the snitch key. The key. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but honestly, I feel like this is one of those jokes uh, a la... Um, uh, oh, what's it called? Uh, Oh god, I'll blink on the name. Uh, well, you, you ponder for a second. I got, I'll say, I'll say yeah, something for a for moment. It. 
Uh, it's, I mean, Harry's main offering to the story here at the end almost fits the more classic hero, hero trope of where it's not so much the hero, it's the tools that they're bringing to bear. Mm. And that his power of love enchantment did play an integral role, apparently, in helping defeat and banish the villain in some shape or form I'm going to ask you about. And so only he could really offer that. He didn't even know he was bringing it to the situation. But it is a unique skill that he had that worked. I don't know if he, sh- if he should necessarily get too much credit for that. That's essentially just a participation award as somehow winning the day, but it, it's something unique to him. So it's perfect that you say that, because the movie that I was trying to remember the, the right name for is Indiana Jones and the Raider of the Lost Ark, which Indiana Jones doesn't do anything useful. <laughs> he has a key bit of knowledge that allows him to survive the end of the story. Right, but but basically if he did not do anything... It would have ended the same way. Except the Allies would not have gotten it. It would have just been sitting on that now abandoned island in the middle of nowhere. Sure. But but functionally, like, <laughs> it's the same result for the bad guy. Uh, actually, actually, if he hadn't blown up that plane, it would have flown to Berlin. And it could have even been worse for the Germans. Okay. <laughs> right. So... So has, has, if Harry doesn't do all of these things... And if he just plays Quidditch like a normal kid, the they blow Slytherin and Ravenclaw out of the water and mm-hmm. win the House Cup. Um, Dumbledore returns and, and uh, deals with Quirrell appropriately um, and maybe even does a better job of routing Voldemort. Um, and nobody gets hurt and they don't betray Neville. Yes, but they had their own little character growths and arcs that may set them up to play an even more integral role in the story going forward. It's a classic setup for a longer, a longer cla- uh, uh, hero's journey arc. Sure, I, I'm not disagreeing. I know, I'm... but I'm also defending what you're very much correct about in terms of they, if they had stayed out of it as probably everybody else planned, it would have resolved as was planned. Yeah, um, and I guess so. Like the fact that that Harry is good on a broom, and I, I guess touched Quirrell painfully um does it really merit more points than anybody else i mean i don't know it's it's 12 year old standards of success here they're not exactly rising to the heights that the adults are capable of but you need to recognize where what potential they're showing i would like to point out that the sort of like behind the scenes version of this story where we are just following the adults just has a lot of professor mcgonagall face palming (laughs) <laughs> off in a corner yeah someone needs to actually bring her into the know a little bit more so she isn't constantly slapping herself well so i th- I feel like there's that but there's also like it's more like oh god like i just he's done it again like why is he giving children an invisibility cloak <laughs> and also like the mirror of error said like first of all why like i think we did ask this question when we first encountered it, but why is it a thing, and and what is its normal use? And I mean, I feel like I should make a joke about you know the professors watching porn, but like apart from that, it it's just like McGonagall seems like the only one in in sort of the Gryffindor side of things, which uh, apparently Dumbledore is part of, that is just like trying to keep everybody in check and the place running. She does come across as the main adult in the room surrounded by overgrown children. Including yeah. Dumbledore, oddly enough. Well, including Dumbledore, oddly enough. I mean, I'd put him at the top of the damn list. I mean, He's certainly quirky. I feel like, like that's what magic does to you. 
Yeah. I, I feel like nobody is acting like an adult except for McGonagall, and she's clearly written for the audience as, like, this stodgy, boring, and unpleasant, like, uh, schoolmistress, except for the time that she tries to flirt with um, Hagrid. Um, <laughs> well, she turns herself into totally a big... cat, too. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Sure. A disapproving <laughs> cat, which is, you know, a very appropriate for her. Well, there's only so far you can go. <laughs> <laughs> also rather appropriate cat honestly um it feels like we have uh already kind of drifted into questions Mm -hmm. yeah so i have some comments um to make um before we we've drifted into questions i have some comments yeah (laughs) well these are these are in line with the comments i end up making but it's more just i'm gonna bother you sarah with things and not particularly ask questions just yet um so was jk rolling a fan of the usual suspects because she basically just put quarrel is kaiser sose was there a question mark at the end of that (laughs) well sure i mean you know it's it's a you know was she a fan of the movie i don't remember when it when it came out in relation to um checking checking um also how does Dumbledore know what earwax tastes like? Prior experience with that candy. His his previous experiment with that candy was a vomit-flavored one, and he hasn't touched them since. Well, we know he stopped there. We don't know how many years of earwax came before, do we? And I suppose that he had to have some, like, real-world example to compare it to. So, you know, he had siblings. <laughs> <laughs> It's also a magical world. They probably use earwax for some concoction in some shape or form. I am sure that they do. Um, so there's a phrase that I thought was interesting. Um, Hermione's saying, well, you know, well, I got back all right. I brought Ron around. That took a while. Is this a Sleeping Beauty reference? I mean, I suppose that there are elements of that. I mean... yeah. Things happen later that may... Anyway. Yeah. He also did get clocked on the head by a giant chest That's piece. <laughs> yeah, he actually really does need medical attention right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's fine. People just get hit on the head and just, like, fall asleep for a while. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you are in the sciences, sir, dealing with the brain. You can't even say that right now. <laughs> this is a magical realm, Spencer. <laughs> in terms of brain trauma? In terms of evil villains expounding on their evilness and, you know, getting hit upside the head with a with a gun knocks you out for about 45 minutes. Also, to answer your question, Usual Suspects came out in 95. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone came out in 97. Hmm. The timing may work. Um, and so before I turn it over to you, to you Spencer, I, th- I think this is actually a question that, that I'm going to pose to you, Sarah, rather than bothering you with things that I notice in the chapter. So, um, how does Dumbledore know that Neville stood up to, to the, uh, the three, uh, Hermione, Ron, and, and Harry? Does he just, like, creep on, like, the entire student body? And, like, where does this end that is a great question that i had not considered until you just now asked said question um i think that there are a couple of options that are less creepy than 
what you're suggesting, although they are no less creepy because we are, I mean, we are in a surveillance state. Um, and I think you, we, very little happens in the castle without Dumbledore being aware of it. Um, as I think is, is pretty clear from the end of this chapter. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are possibilities for ways that he could directly be watching what is going on in the common room if he wanted to. I would say that it is probably more likely that at that hour of night, um, that one or two, one of two things happened. Either the fat lady portrait who guards the entrance to Gryffindor Tower um, kind of saw what, what went down and mm-hmm. gossiped about it, as she does. Or there were house elves involved, who we will not meet until <laughs> next book, but distinct possibility. For, for this one instance? Yes. I feel like there are other instances that Dumbledore is either, like, magically present at a lot of things, like somehow being able to find a cloak of his invisibility, which I feel like would be a very complicated thing, um, needle in the haystack idea, or whatever. You mean him having his own cloak of invisibility? No, no, no. So so he returns Harry's cloak oh, of yeah. invisibility, mm-hmm. yeah. and so either he was there and saw it dropped, Mm-hmm. Or was somehow, you know, clairaudience, clairvoyance kind of deal, like, paying attention. Um, Because if it's super easily detected, it's completely useless and wouldn't have protected them from the professors. And it seems like casting or whatever magicking impressive magic. Okay. Okay, yeah. I, so what I would say, I would actually, um, I would turn to the movies for clarification (laughs) on this point. Um, which I don't think is discounted in the book, although I don't think that it's necessarily explicitly stated. But when the cloak Mm -hmm. is not on somebody, like if you have it folded up in a drawer, it looks looks like like a cloak. cloak. Yeah. Okay. It seems like from what we have revealed at the end of this chapter and what we can deduce from the rest of the book that Dumbledore doesn't teach a class directly, right? He's just kind of, he's the headmaster. Correct. Providing, I guess, administrative authority. He's more a captain, my captain. Yeah, that's my that's my theory I'm going with here, is that he seems to be much more in favor of the alternative learning experience style of teaching. And that everything our characters went through just seems to be something that he orchestrated for the purpose of their continued development. And the fact that that's literally dealing with forces that could help in the world is just a Tuesday to him. The students and need to learn, and this is his method of going about teaching them. Hogwarts. His chocolate frog pictures whispers carpe diem. <laughs> Definitely possible. Hogwarts, a Montessori school. We're getting a big element of that. Some of the <laughs> some of the teachers like a very rigid classroom scene, you know, following the various rules of decorum. Dumbledore is not about that in any sense of the word, but he's still very much about them learning and following the various pathways he wants them to go down. As someone who has frequently taught classes, that is easy to say as someone who is not actively teaching classes. <laughs> fair. <laughs> I can't dispute that. All right. Uh, BJ, shall I move into my questions or you got another comment to offer? Oh, I, I mean, I'm sure I'll offer up more comments, but please move <laughs> into your questions. All right. Sarah, primeval magic, uh, which um, it seems to be what this power of love kind of thing that uh, Harry's mom did is in the category of. Is this the kind of magic of where it doesn't really have the same degree of rules or orders or parameters placed on it because it is so 
back in the past arcane. It is so tied into the elements that you can't really direct it in the same way that most of this magic can. Like, is whatever is on Harry, do they even know, person-specific? Is it affecting anybody that potentially touches him? Or is this the kind of thing of we're, we're aware it's there, but we'll not really understand how it works until things occur in the field? So it's mostly, it's mostly the latter. Um, I think that we get some hints that Dumbledore knows something about it, although it's not clear to what extent. Um, and I will say, and this is, I, I mean, we learn, we learn more about it later. I don't think it's super a spoiler to say that Dumbledore isn't really sure to what extent he knows anything about it going forward, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel like that can be said of most things. <laughs> that's probably true. That was a pretty vague statement just to put out in the world. Um you know, I, I it, it ends up, it becomes kind of a thing that I think BJ would call hand wavy. Um, I might call uh, deep and mysterious. And um, <laughs> uh, there are, I, we learn more things about it. We mostly learn things about it as they happen, as you suggested, Spencer. Um, and there are a couple of things that some people know specifically about it, but it is kind of, it is a, an uncertainty in the world. Um, and certainly not anything that you would ever learn about, like in a class at Hogwarts. Well, it seems like the kind of magic, which is almost more of a product of circumstances and events that have led you to a moment rather than something you can really set up. Mm-hmm. That it's just, it, if, it, if it exists constantly in the world, but just happens as a result of something that's outside your control, there'd be very little you could understand to predict about mm-hmm. that. Um, just write, you know, kind of write mythology about and keep it as part of your history. So I'm going to term it um, Fabula Armis from now on. Okay. Um, we'll see if it catches on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I tried I tried putting in plot armor, and it clearly decided that plot was like... it. It's... It translated as insidious, Armus. And I was like, well, like that. Not, not that kind of, well, I don't know. Okay, what is it again, BJ? Fabu- um, Fabula Armus? Fabula Armus. Okay, I'm going to ask you that 12 more times before I decide to forget it. Seems reasonable. In terms of uh, things that are also kind of hand-waved in the story, and this one frustrated me a bit, given that it was the thing that they've been questioning for on the very cover of the book. What happened to the stone that Dumbledore just kind of offhand says, oh yeah, it was destroyed, and Nicholas Flamel will die. We didn't see it destroyed. We weren't provided any events that would show it being destroyed or any reason to believe that what we saw could lead to it being destroyed. Do we find out any more going forward as to what happened to it, or are we just to lead to believe that something of what we just saw could lead to this all-powerful magical artifact being permanently destroyed so or is Dumbledore straight lying to us um we never see the philosopher's stone again um I think that we are meant to believe that when Dumbledore came he took the stone from Harry and went back to Nicholas Flamel and said listen this is too dangerous will you destroy the stone yeah that seems to be a, a that makes more sense to me than what Dumbledore said happened yeah um, so I have a question mm-hmm a real question. Um, why doesn't Nicholas Flamel have the stone prior to this? Um, well, that's a that's a really good question. I we never we don't have an explicit answer to it. I would assume um, that it's because like Voldemort can get to people 
and the stone needs to be somewhere safe. I don't think he particularly wanted to be on the uh, in the crosshairs of that guy right then. Mm-hmm. That if he found out down the grapevine that Voldemort wanted this, then his life is forfeit if he's if it's found in his possession at a given moment. So yeah, I will give it to either the bank or I will give it to Hogwarts and let them potentially weather that storm, and then I can get it back afterwards. Fair enough. I mean, I guess I kind of feel like, but if Voldemort knows that he made it, it's just like uh, it's it's the very typical evil bad doer that kidnaps the scientists to make them right based on double description at the end it doesn't seem like he can easily remake it or at least doesn't necessarily want to yeah is it this is like one of those once in a century once in a millennium kind of magical artifacts that required every amount of effort to accomplish and can't really be effectively repeated it also does seem like he is i mean he's so old now that i mean so well beyond any normal bounds of, of human life that the moment he stops taking the um, uh, the elixir that's put out by the stone, he will die. So, like, Voldemort threatening him is sort of a fool's errand because he'll just <laughs> stop drinking the elixir. Um, I do right. want to I do want to go back for just a second, um, Spencer, to something that she, you said, and I misspoke a little bit earlier, just about the stone itself and whether we see it again we do not see we do not see the stone again but we do learn a lot more about the stone oh cool that'll be fun Mm -hmm. uh do we happen to see quarrel again because that's another one that falls into the same category we never see quarrel again um we never really i mean he gets mentioned as a kind of like hey that was a weird thing that happened last year um but we never see him again and i think that that ultimately what we are meant to believe is that he is he is actually dead. Now, I'll just ask your personal interpretation then of the scene. Are we to believe that, I, I guess the, I would see three possibilities there of where either what Harry was doing killed him and Dumbledore is effectively keeping that from him to avoid that trauma. B, Dumbledore killed him. Or C, the act of Voldemort fleeing effectively killed him or at least left him to die as is as, is, as said. What do you think happened? Um, I think, I think that it is probably some combination of the last two. Well, now I've forgotten what order you've put them in, but I think it's... Harry did it, Dumbledore did it, Voldemort did it. Okay, the first and the third. I think that, um, you know, we get descriptions of, like, intense physical trauma that whatever it is in Harry is doing to Quirrell via Voldemort's presence in Quirrell's body. Um, But I also think that, you know, we certainly get the sense of how enmeshed Quirrell is or how enmeshed Voldemort is in Quirrell's body now that he has possessed him that I think Voldemort fleeing is an intense trauma that had he stayed he might have been able to sort of sustain Quirrell's body um, but instead leaves. I think that once again the movies are a little more clear on like how this actually goes down in that interpretation um, but I think from the book we get, I think, I think Harry is probably the main driver of Quirrell's does demise. He, does he ever really realize that? Because we, we've seen him threaten murder before, but actually doing it's a different animal. Um, I don't know. I don't know that he does realize that. Eh. It gets kind of glossed over in a lot of ways. I think that was Dumbledore's intent here. Yeah. Yeah, and Harry doesn't, like, dwell on what happens to Quirrell. 
Harry doesn't dwell on much, period. That's kind of just Harry's character. That's true, but then he becomes a teenager and he gets moody and he dwells on everything. Well, we all went through that. <laughs> I mean, he was, he went through a reasonable amount of trauma. I wouldn't hold it against him that he's uh, not dwelling on things. No, I think that is just fine. His main dwelling moment of the story is when he discovers the mirror, and that's purposely out of character. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if he wants to go forward and deal with the various issues of his trauma, that would probably be healthy, but it just doesn't seem to be what we've seen of him so far. Yeah, and, you know, significantly, um, what he dwells on in the mirror is is his family, which, mm-hmm. like, stems a lot of uh, kind of his angst going forward as well. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, BJ, I'm just dominating the questions here. Do you have another one to offer? Otherwise, I've got to, two more. I am more than happy for you to uh, continue in your line of of questioning. Well, um, I'm being led to presume that none of the professors that are at Hogwarts are new. We know that uh, Quirrell previously went on a world tour, but he seemingly was a professor at Hogwarts before then. So that would suggest that what happened to him with Voldemort is either relatively recent or he's been good at hiding it for, what, 12 years? Um, uh, so did we like, find out anything more about Quirrell's history and how Voldemort got attached to him and where the hell Voldemort has been before then? Yeah, so Quirrell is new this year. Oh, he is not. He's not a prior professor. I think that's right. I think when they meet him in the in the pub outside of Diagon Alley, because there's also, like, they already have a kind of conversation on the bad luck that Defense Against the Dark Arts teachers have at Hogwarts. I might be misremembering that. Um, hmm. I have to go back and check. I don't remember for sure. I, I, I'd assume that that all the professors were pretty well established. That the changing of a professor at the school was a prob- was a pretty rare thing. Um, that, that made that so made according to the fandom wiki, he <laughs> was the source. Uh, some source. <laughs> I just googled something and something came up. Um, so he used to be a Muggle studies professor. Oh, interesting. There's a uh, Muggle Studies? Oh, yeah. We did yes. not see that on the... <laughs> We see that in year three. Oh, um, it's a high... <laughs> they don't want to expose children to that kind of concept too early. Or maybe four. Something that you can click on. Um, it's an elective class. Yeah. Um, there's a non-magical studies curriculum. Um, <laughs> that... Oh, God, that's so condescending and funny. Um, it involves the study of the history and daily lives of muggles and how they are able to live without magic, but instead <laughs> electricity, technology, and science. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is condescending. Um, anyway, so, um, and apparently, um, I don't think this is a particular spoiler, um, basically between that and him being uh, the Dada professor, he went in search of Voldemort. Yes. Um, Consciously. He, I mean, he was, like, by most accounts, he was, like, normal before he went off on this kind of quest. Yeah. I mean, so so this says that, that he thought he could achieve recognition for finding Voldemort and learn things that would ensure that no one laughed at him again. <laughs> that just seems like such a... Okay, so, like, for Disney... the record, that tidbit is yeah. not in the books. <laughs> okay. Like Maybe that's not some a thing. Fan fiction. Yeah. <laughs> it, is there a mythos outside the books? Like has J.K. Rowling written other materials, like an encyclopedia or something, mm-hmm. that have provided further detail? Yeah. So she's written several books um, that kind of appear 
within Harry Potter. So she has written, and this is where the other films come from, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Um, ah. She also, I think, wrote Quidditch Through the Ages. And then um, she, in, in slightly more controversial form, continues to put out little tidbits that um, are less accepted as canon. <laughs> uh, so ah. apparently Pottermore has loads of information. Yeah, and Potter's more... Delving. Pottermore's got a lot of like really interesting kind of stuff too, especially about um, other magical schools throughout the world and um, other texts and all kinds of stuff like that, which is which is really fun. All right. Well, I've got further ponderings. I'll just leave to myself for right now because I don't know where they'll lead. Um, but I think that wraps up my immediate questions. Okay, BJ, any last questions from you? Um, I don't think so. I think uh, I think I'm good. I think I'm ready for uh, for book two. Book two. We've got more chambers. Chamber of Secrets. She does the titles well. I'll give her that much. <laughs> you seem very begrudging about it. <laughs> you know, I, I enjoyed this chapter, but again, it just left me with a laundry list of questions to go into the next book with, which I suppose is the entire intent behind it. <laughs> gotta gotta yeah. keep you on that cliff edge. And the next you know, chapter is the worst birthday. So. It's really You're bad, going for guys. a treat. <laughs> the worst birthday. Ah, that's where we began. Well, we, that's where we began the story. We've got no, to we go begin with. What was that, Spencer? We, be, we began the story with. I'm, I want to say his name is Pugsley, but it's not his name. Uh, what's his name? Dudley. <laughs> thank you. We began. <laughs> Dudley began with his, Thank you. We'll have to, you'll have to write down all the nicknames again, BJ. <laughs> yeah, we are. Right. We are back with the Dursleys. So, end of book one, y'all. Feeling good. I, yeah. I quite I quite enjoyed it. I mean, it was we talked about doing this for a while in terms of going through Harry Potter, and I wasn't really sure what to expect. And I'm just delightfully amused by it that it has a, so much charm. I can really, and this is a dumb statement given how many copies it's sold, but I'm really now getting why it's been so successful. <laughs> We've just been waiting for you, Spencer. <laughs> <sighs> Such a grand stage you prepared for my arrival. All right. Well, We're this has been fun, y'all. Yep. It's been fun, as always. Well, uh, I don't know when we'll necessarily... Should, should we continue on a week-to-week format in terms of the next episode of Kurt? We'll debate this off-camera. For right now, <laughs> thank, for, thank you for joining us, folks. We've had a blast reading through Harry Potter with you, and uh, we won't equally enjoy going through the next book when the time comes. Good night and good luck. Thank you, Mr. Murrow. 